Thank you, Jan. Great job. Take your Bibles, turn with me tonight to Ecclesiastes chapter number 2. Several of you have asked, and so I'm going to tell you about one of my doctor's trips this week. I had two, but I'll just give you one. I had an appointment with the hematologist this week, and because David was ill, she couldn't go with me on this particular visit. Okay, number one, I'm already anemic. Number two, I haven't eaten in two days because I'm preparing for the test the next day. Number three, the nurse couldn't find the vein. And she kept digging. Before I know it, these little birds are going around and around in my head. She looked at me and said, are you all right? And I said, no. Next thing I know, I'm in the floor, lying on the floor in the uh, drawing room. And all I could think about was, I wonder how clean this floor is. (laughs) I told the nurse, I said, my wife is going to think this is hilarious. She said, oh, no, she won't. I said, oh, yes, she will. And she was right. I keep, they keep finding these weird things that I've never heard of. They tell me now I have cold gluten. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought, cold gluten. So I was telling Debbie what the doctor told me about it. Number one, you're not supposed to be cold. Number two, you should warm all your liquids. I don't know how in the world I'm going to do that. Number three, I couldn't vacuum clean anymore. She bought it all the way until we got to the vacuum cleaning part, and then she knew I was lying. So that was the fun for this week. Who knows what next week will bring. Ecclesiastes chapter number two, I want to bring you the encouraging message entitled, I Hate Life. The man who wrote Ecclesiastes called himself Coleth. Coheleth, because he saw his calling in life, to gather God's people for instruction. Today, we would call him the preacher, and since he identifies himself as the king of Jerusalem, we might call him the preacher king. Although he never succinctly identifies himself by giving his name, his great wealth and wisdom seem to indicate and identify him as King Solomon. At first, the preacher thought... As he began to look at trying to decide what the purpose of life was, that he would pursue wisdom, that it would give him the answers that he sought. And we look at that in the first part of chapter 1. Failing in that pursuit, he then turned his attention and beginning in chapter 2 with pleasure. But after finding that sensual pleasure would not produce lasting happiness, he decided maybe a change of direction was what needed to happen. So it says in verse 12, then I turned. In other words, I decided to turn in another direction. I decided to pursue a different avenue. He turns in his search of happiness and pursuit of the purpose of life in a new direction. It is still, however, to answer the old, old question, is life worth living? Even great men of God have found themselves frustrated by life at times, even to the point of wanting to die. Job did. Elijah did. 
Moses did. Jonah did. But each of them later changed their minds. Charles Swindoll says, How many there are who appeared to be suave and stable and successful, but who down inside are dreadfully frustrated. The term frustrated comes to us from a Latin word, which means in vain. In other words, one who is frustrated feels that all he does is void of purpose. Solomon now tries wisdom and work. Or in modern parlance, we would say getting an education and getting things done. Or our equivalent would be getting a degree and getting a job. Let's look at what Solomon looks at. First of all, there is wisdom and death. There is no protection against death. Death is a certainty. I did one of those online things that's supposed to tell you how long you're supposed to live. Have you seen that one going around here recently? If you answer these four questions or eight questions or whatever, it'll tell you how long you're going to live. Well, mine come back that I was going to live to be 68. Given that I'm 63, that was not very encouraging and heartwarming. But whether we like it or not, death is a certainty. For some sooner, for some later, but it's coming for each of us. There is a biblical view of death, however. The writer of Hebrews says man is destined to die once, but after that to face the judgment. James writes about life, saying that life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Paul, The apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Now, the work of Christ has altered the meaning of death for Christians, so much so that we really cannot consider it as really the same experience as the unbeliever. Of course, the physiological aspect may be the same, and the souls of both groups continue to exist after the body has expired. But at the point of conversion, death has been robbed of its sting and its power in the mind of a believer. You'll recall what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, Where, O death, is thy victory? Where, O death, is thy sting? Because of our salvation, our entire perspective and purpose for the rest of our life is no longer subject to be governed by the fear of death, as it is in the case of unbelievers. Our life begins to take on real and lasting value, and our priorities and expectations have been altered. All this can occur only if death is no longer perceived as final or damning. Otherwise, everything that we do remains meaningless and futile. Since both the wise man and the fool die, what is the value of wisdom? That's the question that Solomon asked. Essentially, it is 
contrasted with his own opinion that he wrote in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 3, he wrote, The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but he cast away the desire of the wicked. Verse 7 of that same chapter, he says, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Verse 27, he says, The fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. And then in verse 30, the righteous will not be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. But we have to understand, just as Solomon didn't seem to be living by his own advice in his latter years, sometimes we fail to live according to our own advice that we give to others. Solomon now seems to have taken his eyes off of God, and he sees no difference in the death of a wise man and a fool. In that, both still die. In verse 12, he says, Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now, madness and folly go together. The preacher is not describing three different categories, wisdom, madness, and folly, but rather two. On the one hand, there is wisdom which is used here in the most general sense of the word, uh, referring to human thinking at its very best. We're talking about simply good, moral, practical advice, advice on how to live your daily life, even from people like Benjamin Franklin, uh, Emily Post, Oprah Winfrey, um, Dr. Phil, just good, practical advice. On the other hand, there is madness and folly, or We might better read it as mad folly because the two terms go together. What the preacher is telling us is that after pursuing pleasure, he reconsidered the claims of wisdom and mad folly. He wanted to compare the two, studying the difference between the right way to live and the wrong way to live, and see if that would help him to understand the purpose of life. In the second part of verse 12, he continues by saying, For what can a man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. By this, Solomon means that no one is going to be able to challenge or to contest his judgment because no one has had or will have the resources that he does. As the wisest and wealthiest king who ever lived, He is in a unique position, and he wants to write a definitive statement about wisdom and mad folly. And he can't, if he can't find the ultimate meaning of life, then nobody else is going to be able to either. But he does say in verse 13 and 14, wisdom is better than folly. Then I saw that wisdom exceeds folly as light excels darkness the wise man's eyes are in his head but the fool walks in darkness Solomon says well at least the wise man because of his knowledge can foresee some of the shortfalls in life and he can avoid some of those shortfalls in his quest for pleasure and because of that his downfall may not be as quick or have or as devastating as the fool. 
The second part of verse 14, he recognizes, though, that death is the great equalizer. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. You might circle the word event and make a note there that what he's talking about is death. Yet I I myself perceive that the same event, death, happens to all of them. Now, this verse might mean simply that the wise and the foolish experience somewhat of the same ups and downs in life. Whether one lives by wisdom or folly, one is inevitably caught up in some of the same events in life. They still experience calamities and difficulties. It doesn't matter how smart we are, many things are beyond our control. But probably Solomon had something very specific in mind. He was talking about the one thing that happens to everyone, death. He makes it much clearer when he says in verse 16, how does the wise man die just like the fool? Dr. Haddon Robinson was preaching from Ecclesiastes, and he was recounting what it was like to stand at the graveside of a man who had a working knowledge of 34 languages. Most people know only one or two languages and at, at the most, but here was a man who understood nearly three dozen languages. Yet in the end, it didn't matter how smart he was. He was still very dead. And that's Solomon's point. Verse 15 reads, And so I said in my heart, As it happens to a fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? And then I said in my heart, This also is vanity. Solomon's conclusion is, Wisdom is better than folly, but what difference does it make if both end up with the same fate, death? Now, we, remember, we're talking about life apart from God. That's still Solomon's issue here, life apart from God. Charles Swindoll gives this modern application of that. This is the kind of thought that dawns on a person who has recently graduated with high honors from a great university and cannot find a job. He is highly qualified, yet he feels completely useless. It's a terrible feeling. He has a degree, maybe multiple degrees, and he cannot find work. He looks out at the world and those who don't have the education that he does, and he sees most of them are employed. And he says, what is the use of all this education? What is the use of all these degrees? What is the meaning of it all? It's all an empty dream, this expensive, exhaustive pursuit of knowledge. That is the conclusion that Solomon has come to. Verse 16 continues the thought. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? 
No one wants to be forget, forgotten. That's why we make tombstones out of granite, out of marble, not out of cardboard. We want to be remembered. But time passes, and everyone who knew that person also dies. And over time, even the engraving on the tombstone grows faint. For example, we can, sit, we can consider the great pyramids of Egypt, which were built in the memory of the pharaohs. The pyramids are still there, but there are few who know the names of who they were built for. The second thing that, Paul talk, that Solomon talks about is work and death. There is no protection against unworthy heirs. One thing we have to acknowledge is the fact that most people expect work to give them some sense of purpose in life, especially men. That's why that often the very first question that we ask someone that we meet is, what kind of work do you do? Or what do you do for a living? Our lives are defined by our jobs. Men especially find their worth in their work. But according to Ecclesiastes, work is the wrong place to find the meaning of life. One wrote, we work our entire lives at jobs we don't like, to buy things we don't need, to impress people we don't like, only to figure out too late that death robes don't have pockets to take the stuff with us. And so it goes to someone else to enjoy the fruit of our labor. We end up giving our stuff to someone who didn't have to work for it. Verse 17 tells us that Solomon hated life. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing for me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now, when he says that he hated life, it doesn't mean that he was contemplating suicide. In fact, death was the one thing he really wanted to avoid. The atheist Voltaire put it this way, I hate life and yet I am afraid to die. We probably would phrase that a bit differently today. We would say probably, I'm disgusted with life. Many people in our day share that feeling. Apart from a relationship with a living God, Life really holds no purpose. Francis Morak, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1952, wrote this. You, can, um, you cannot imagine the torment of having nothing out of life, of having to look forward to nothing, death, a feeling that there is no other world beyond this one and that the puzzle will never be explained. That truly is how an unbeliever looks at the world. Solomon hated life because he saw that it would bring to an end his accumulated knowledge. But it is because he was only considering life from an earthly perspective. The answer is not to hate life, but to develop a biblical perspective. The Apostle Paul tells us how that Biblical perspective is gained in his letter to the church at Colossae. He wrote in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, 
Seek those things which were above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Those who follow Paul's advice find that there is life and wisdom beyond the grave. That means that we who are here, we are not going to be forgotten. We will be remembered for all eternity. The Bible assures us further that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That verse implies not so much that our lives are concealed, but rather that our lives are protected. The word that the apostle uses for hidden is the basis for the English word encryption. Our lives are encrypted with Christ. God so preserves us in his son that nothing essential about who we are will be lost forever. And then he begins to look at wealth. And in verse 18, he comes to the conclusion, well, wealth, you can't keep it. And I hated all my labor in which I had told under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. One of the main problems of the accumulation of great worldly wealth is that in the end, someone else will profit from all your hard work. He also says, wealth, you can't protect it. He says in verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I have toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turn my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I have toiled under the sun. Truth is, no one has control over what his legacy will come to. We have no control over how the person who comes after us will control that. We have no idea and we have no control over whether that person who follows us is wise or foolish. It troubled Solomon that he might leave all his wealth and all his material possessions to a fool. Unfortunately, that concern was well-founded because after Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam came to the throne, and Rehoboam was so foolish that he led his nation into war after decades of peace, and he lost almost all of his father's kingdom. Many, many years ago, one of the old commentators, Adam Clark, wrote, Alas, Solomon, the wisest of all men, made the worst use of his wisdom. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and yet he left behind one son to possess his estates and his throne, and that one was the silliest of fools. In verse 21, Solomon says, For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must 
leave as heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what is man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart, which he also toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. The implication of Solomon's words is that since this person who follows him has not worked for what he receives, he will thus not value it as he should, and he may be thoroughly foolish in how he handles it. And that was exactly what happened. Third and finally tonight, joy and life with God. Enjoyment is from God. We find in verses 24 through 26 the first of six conclusions that are found in Ecclesiastes, each of which emphasizes the importance of accepting life as God's gift and enjoying it in God's will. Not only were the blessings from God, but even the enjoyment of the blessings was a gift from God. Charles Swindoll says we have the idea that the world is the one that gives us enjoyment and God's the one who clubs us when we have fun. But the fact is, it's just the other way around. Without warning now, the preacher gives the first truly positive thing in the entire book. He writes there, nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? One commentator said these verses are an, an oasis of optimism in a wilderness of despair. And obviously it is that. His, pain, his point is that enjoyment is the gift of God. It is possible to have joy in life if you take it from the hand of God. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting. He may give to him who is good before God. This also was vanity and grasping for the wind. Paul said to his son in the faith, Timothy, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Everything is made for our enjoyment, to enjoy in a relationship with God. Solomon is trying to convey the truth that we are built to worship the Creator, we not the other way around. We are not to worship the creation, the stuff that God gives us. All the things that God has made are blessing to be enjoyed and that demonstrate his love. But they are not the end all. Ray Stedman says, isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find it. But the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, more life seems to come to you. And spending all our time trying to figure out life, 
The simple truth is we ought to stick close to God and enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that Solomon has recorded these great truths for us. We still find ourselves running after the same things that Solomon did in his life and coming to the same conclusions that life is empty apart from you. And so, Father, tonight I pray that you'd help us to really realize that life can only be enjoyed in a proper relationship with you. Outside of a proper relationship with you, we're going to find emptiness and a lack of purpose in life. But if we take life as a gift from you and we learn to enjoy it as you have given it to us, we're going to enjoy life and we're going to enjoy our experience more and we're going to walk closer and closer with you. Whatever it is, Lord, that you want to do in our hearts and lives this evening, we want to give this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.